As millennial traits for immediacy and connectivity, willingness to share, and a desire for experience become adopted broadly by all generations, industries are trying to adapt to these rapidly changing consumer behaviors. Companies are competing not only with each other, but with the unknown of what lies at the end of this structural shift. I'm Matt Palazzolo, Senior Portfolio Manager, and I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Robertson. In our first part of Millennials, Shifting the Balance of Power podcast, we discuss the values, traits, and behaviors of millennials, how they're different from prior generations, and how they are challenging the status quo. These behaviors are having a profound impact on industries, and as investment managers, we need to understand the shifts, but more importantly, integrate the impact into our investment theses for each and every company that we consider for our portfolios. In this installment of The Pulse, we're going to discuss many of these important shifts, compare and contrast company models, and detail the investment implications. So Paul, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be here, Matt. So Paul, in the last podcast on millennials, you and I touched on the many industries that are feeling the effects of millennials' behaviors. You gave the example of e-commerce. So let's walk through the poster child for e-commerce, Amazon, and its business model. Sure, Matt. So, so let's simplify. I think we can think of Amazon as really being made up of three businesses, a retail business, an advertising business, and the Amazon Web Services business. Now, let me start with the retail business. The retail business works primarily through the Prime membership model. You pay about $119 a year for all free shipping. Free shipping for an entire year. It doesn't take very long to work out. That's a spectacularly good bargain. Certainly the way millennials uh, shop online, $119 a year for free shipping is an amazing deal. This binds customers to Amazon. It captures customers. Today, the Amazon retail business frequently doesn't offer the lowest price, but the convenience, the free shipping, the wide array of things trumps price. Unfortunately, this business is by itself only marginally profitable. Um, Certainly when they rent the platform out to third-party vendors, they can get some margin out of that. But generally speaking, the retail model is not especially profitable. But it is very attractive to consumers. And on top of that, Amazon has been able to layer on the advertising business, which will become increasingly large. It's A separate business, although it's really inseparable from the retail business, this is likely to be a very profitable business, pure profit in in effect. And then the Amazon web service business is already a high margin, rapidly growing business. Just discuss what that Amazon web service is, just really in a nutshell. So um, the Pulse podcasts Mm -hmm. must be hosted on a server somewhere Uh, Bernstein might buy that server, own and operate that server, but we're just as likely to rent that server space from a vendor like Amazon Web Services. Let's go back to the basic retail business. This was the original Amazon business, and there are many threats today. Um, I guess the biggest threat is Walmart. 
uh, because Walmart has the scale, the distribution centers around the country. There are also some niche players, Etsy, Wayfair, for example. Um, But this business is perhaps with the aid of the capital markets, moved to a point of substantial relevance with customers. And again, because of the financial market's willingness to finance this company, it has the financial wherewithal to be a long-term player in the retail business. On top of that, of course, they layer the advertising business and the web services business. So all in all, we have this powerful model that's disrupted the retail landscape and is here for the long term, even if itself is not particularly profitable. But none of this means it's necessarily a great investment. And, and let me explain this. The stock is very expensive. Uh, it leaves very little margin for safety uh, if you're a safety-conscious investor. On consensus earnings, the stock is trading at something like 41 times 2020 earnings, as compared to the market itself at about 14 times. Now, let me be clear. That doesn't mean that an investor in Amazon is being foolish today or necessarily will have a bad experience. If Amazon continues to meet the kind of goals investors have set for it, you'll be rewarded for having invested at this stock price. But if they fall short of those goals, there is the potential for some marked declines in share prices. And I think this is a really good point because you're delineating the company, which I, I certainly know well because I have the boxes coming to my house seemingly every single day, and the stock, what's priced into the stock already, what the assumptions are, and whether or not the stock can meet those lofty expectations. It's what our analysts and portfolio managers do on every single company, not not just on Amazon. Let's just stay with, with um, retail for a second. Many, given millennials, given e-commerce, have heard about the death of retail. In a retail podcast uh, that I did with one of our colleagues, Greg Young, he mentioned that e-commerce is not limitless. It's probably going to disrupt about 40% of U.S. retail annual spend. So my question to you is, how can traditional retailers compete? And can any of them win, given the shifts that you're well aware of with millennials and what's happening broadly? Yeah, it's it's important to remember that not all retail categories are suited for e-commerce. Uh, I always think about commodity products. If, if you've settled on a particular type of toothpaste for your family, it is fine to buy that from Amazon. But if you're talking about a product where you want to explore the product, play with the product in, in the clothing world, try it on, well, you're potentially talking about a product that's not well suited to uh, an e-commerce platform. Certainly bulkier products, very expensive to ship, are not necessarily well suited for e-commerce. Um, in those categories that are more suited for e-commerce, traditional retailers need to offer some combination of the immediacy and connectivity that millennials crave. And we've talked uh, uh, before with our clients about Costco as a company that has managed to carve out an interesting space in the retail uh, world, even though it often deals with products reasonably well suited for e-commerce. 
But there are other products that are poorly suited for e-commerce, and here traditional retailers have a real opportunity. Let me talk about buying beauty products. For yeah, you example. and I talked about this last time about Ulta, and I was actually in a Sephora on Friday night with my wife. It drove me crazy, but you know, either. well, it's a it's. Built for millennials, Matt. <laughs> and sadly, neither of us actually qualify. Um, the traditional approach to buying beauty products um, was that you would go to the counter in a department store and there a sales assistant representing usually a, a single product would display the product and, and, and display some options that you might partake in if you wanted to buy some perfume, for example. Very controlled process, in part designed to maintain high profit margins for those products. But millennials want nothing to do with this. An altar store doesn't have counters. It's an open floor plan. There are salespeople within an altar store, but they're just going to direct you to a particular part of the store, and then you can try whatever you want and, and make a purchasing decision. Alta also has a wide array of brands. There are the traditional department store brands, but there's 500 or so brands in a typical Alta store, 20,000 different products that you can buy. Ultimately, it's a brand incubator in many ways. And so this creates the opportunity for social media celebrities um, I've forgotten her name. Is it Kylie Jenner? Is is why are to, you looking at me? Is sorry, Matt. <laughs> Kylie Jenner, I think, is today the woman who has built what's reputed to be a one billion dollar cosmetics empire, mm. and the way that she was able to achieve that kind of um, of wealth was attracting a social media following. And the social media following could access the products through stores like Alta. Alta's clearly not the only distribution channel, but, but that's the way Alta works. Millennials go there looking for an experience, shopping as an experience. They try different things. They respond to social media trends. They come into the store and they ask for a particular product. Now, this is a retail format that cannot be replicated in an online world. That's the key point, right? In this age of e-commerce success, there still are retail formats that can win very successfully, and Ulta is a great example of that. Yes. Let's move to another platform, I guess, of success, um, streaming media. We've talked about, you and I, Netflix as an example of immediacy and connectivity to attributes or characteristics that millennials often look for. So how has the millennial behavior of viewing media anywhere at any given time given rise to this new content delivery system? Can I guess, can traditional media play on the same field as streaming media? Yes. Yes. These are great questions. The acronym that we apply to millennials here is I want what I want when I want it. And in the world of, of media consumption, it's given rise to a wholly different business model to the one I grew up with. I mean, I like, I think I said this on our last podcast, used to be a keen Seinfeld fan, would watch an episode right. one week and have to wait another week before the next episode came along. My kids won't stand for that. They'll download an entire series of House or The Good Place or parks and rec and they'll watch an entire season in a single sitting it's a completely different business model and it's been 
enabled by companies like Netflix and Hulu. Now, Netflix is fascinating. Netflix charges what I, again, think is a very reasonable price. It's something like $12 a month Mm -hmm. is the basic Netflix package. So $144, $150 with tax a year for limitless or what seems to be limitless volumes of content with no advertising. Mm -hmm. So it's very attractive to the consumer, but underlying it is an amazing investment in content, new and original content. You have to keep it fresh. There has to be new shows every, I don't know, every few weeks. Exactly. And there are. They spend billions of dollars every year on driving the content engine behind this. In fact, their content spend is is really keeping pace with their revenues. They've never actually reached a point of true leverage in the business model where the costs flatten out, but the revenues keep going up. The subscriber numbers are off the charts. They have over 100 million subscribers around the world. Perhaps they have um, penetrated the US market pretty fully, but outside the US, they continue to grow the subscribers quarterly in millions. So it's an amazingly successful business model, incredibly attractive to millennials with this idea that I want what I want when I want it. But the traditional media companies, which have suffered enormously from the migration of eyeballs away from traditional free-to-air and cable TV to streaming, are now fighting back through combinations. So Uh, You might know that um, Comcast owns NBC and it owns the Universal uh, TV and film production assets. AT&T owns the Warner Brothers TV and film production assets. Fox recently threw in the towel here and sold its TV and film production assets to Disney, which allows Disney to really bulk up. And we're waiting for the launch of a Disney streaming service sometime in 2019. So you're saying this is all in response to the success of Netflix and Hulu and other streaming media solutions? Absolutely. The migration of eyeballs away from... Um, free-to-air TV and cable TV to streaming has forced enormous change in the traditional media business. And the traditional media business is trying to fight back. So the future for Netflix is likely to be one of increased competition, trouble renewing contract content deals. I mean, initially, the big media companies thought, well, this is a great way to expand our audience, not appreciating that by licensing their content to Netflix, they're actually cannibalizing right. um, audience for, through other distribution channels. So it's harder to conclude that the Netflix business model is sustainable in the way that we probably can conclude that the Amazon business model is here to stay. In particular, we really don't know what happens if or when the company's forced to either properly price its services to generate an acceptable return on capital or cut back on the content spend. But again, I'm not saying that Netflix can't work from here. It, it, it really could. But like Amazon, our biggest issue with investing in the company is ultimately not the sustainability of the business model itself. It's that the stock is priced on the assumption that Absolutely everything works out fine for Netflix. So it trades at 44 times uh, 2020 earnings 
are more than Amazon and way more than the broad market at just 14 times. There's almost no margin of safety in a valuation like this. Even if Netflix grows its earnings very rapidly over the next few years, there's no guarantee that that very rapid earnings growth will be enough to support and sustain the current share price. If Netflix falls short of the market's high expectations, the stock price could fall significantly. Even if Netflix is able to maintain and even enhance its position of substantial relevance with customers. So one thing we've learned from all of this is that as business models evolve, it's not just that the initial disruptor doesn't always win. In fact, sometimes they do. But even if they do win, that doesn't mean they make good investments. So Amazon and Netflix, the poster children for disruption, poster children for um, some of the businesses that have been successful because of millennials and their influence on other generations. Great companies, wildly successful in their own right, but the decision about the individual investment or the stock is a, is a completely separate one that investors need to make. Let me just switch gears and talk a little bit about food, Paul, because um, in our last podcast, you and I were joking about how millennials abhor cooking at home, that they'd rather eat a meal that was prepared anywhere but their own kitchen. So, But this has also spawned an industry, delivery as an industry. What's happening there? I know there's a lot of uh, successful companies that are sprouting up to take advantage of this new movement. Yes, this emphasis on immediacy, really, and some wellness trends are interacting in ways that are transforming all parts of the food business. So it's certainly true that millennials prefer fresh, prepared foods that they can either take home to eat or ideally that can be delivered to their homes. But these trends have done more than just make delivery a business. They're transforming grocery stores. Grocery stores are having to focus on fresh prepared foods versus packaged goods. So it's a a reimagination of what a grocery store should be about. And prepared meals are increasingly a part of the grocery store setup. And packaged foods, the kind of things that we all remember, um, Campbell's Soup, um, General Mills cereals, those sorts of things are becoming a smaller and smaller part of the business and being pushed to the back of the store. So you're saying so for all of our listeners out there that go to their local supermarket and they're seeing in the refrigerated section prepackaged meals that are already done and all you have to do is, I don't know, put them in the microwave or heat them up. That, that's all because of, or for the most part, because of millennials and this, um, this desire to not have to make anything but to have immediacy? Yes. Although, let me just step back for a moment. We usually describe millennials as the influencers here, mm-hmm. but it's important to recognize that it's not just millennials who are taking advantage of this. I have to admit, Matt, there have been times where I've bought prepared meals from the supermarket, taken them home and microwaved them. And I'm sure some of our listeners of course. have done the same thing. So millennials spark the trends, but the rest of us end up adopting many of the same patterns and behaviors as well. And it's an important point. It's immediate fresh food, right? You can have, yes. you can have General Mills cereal in a second if you want to just pour milk into it, but it's immediate freshly prepared food. Prepared foods. That's That's right. Um, Just to stay on the packaged goods companies for a moment, um, we talk about 
ongoing structural change in the economy caused by millennial preferences uh, impacting all sorts of exotic new businesses. But it's also important to remember that this ongoing structural change is also making for interesting investment controversies around these packaged good companies. What are their sustainable earnings in this future which emphasizes a different part of the grocery store? So it's, it's delivery, it's packaged goods companies, it's grocery stores. Um, the takeout trend, the delivery trend has created all sorts of new app-based companies catering to the trend. Um, companies like Grubhub and Uber Eats. Now, these are private companies, but you key into your phone what you want them to deliver and they'll go to the restaurant or the supermarket and they'll bring that produce that food that meal to your home right i originally thought that it was just a website an aggregator of menus but they're not they they will do the delivery they will do the delivery and this is actually interesting it's a subtle point but it's an of interest it's real benefit to local restaurants it's one of these behavioral and technological shifts that's changing the the competitive balance between traditional chain restaurants and local restaurants. Chain restaurants have always benefited from consistency. Wherever you are in the country, if you see a McDonald's, you know what you're in for. And that's been of great advantage to them. But in a world of delivery and and in a world where local restaurants can display a lot of menu flexibility to reflect changing trends, these app-based companies, these today private companies like Grubhub and Uber Eats are actually facilitating a boom in revenues for local restaurants in their endless battles with national chains. Now, it's not taking place in the dining room. The dining room of your local restaurant is not filling up with more people. It's the delivery and takeout Mm -hmm. orders that are driving revenue. And that, in turn, is driving increased revenues and profits for those who serve the needs of local restaurants. Now, I I mentioned that Grubhub and Uber Eats are essentially private companies today, and I know our our listeners are more interested in public companies and the way we're investing their money. So I just wanted to make a a point about companies like Cisco, that's S-Y-S, the food food delivery company, or U.S. Foods. These are companies that um, exist outside of the chain. I mean, they they service chains, but the chains often have their own delivery infrastructure. So they, they have a mixed business serving independent restaurants as well as chain companies. And they're seeing all of the growth in their revenues. They're and delivering profits. the ingredients, let's be they're, clear. That's right. Exactly. They're delivering the ingredients to restaurant chains. And where they're seeing all the growth is in the local restaurant chain business. The, the part of the business that today given delivery options, is now doing a particularly good job of meeting millennials' desire for immediacy in fresh and prepared foods. I think this is really interesting because before this trend all started, these local restaurants would have to fight each other for market share of the people that would come into the restaurant. Now you're saying there's incremental sales. So they're still fighting each other for the, the diners who go out. Yes. But now it's more... The delivery, there's incremental sales that's coming into that business, which benefits the restaurant, but it also benefits the companies that provide the ingredients. That's right. We talked a little bit about um, immediacy and connectivity, but there's also this element of these behaviors tied to millennials' openness to sharing. You've talked about that. We talked about that last time we got together. 
It's a lot of the, the social media aspect and attraction that millennials have. This is a new industry. It's not displacing any other industry in, in the traditional sense, but it is disrupting many industries from a financial sense. Your thoughts on social media and the impact there? You're right, Matt. And the first thing to recognize about social media is just how pervasive it has become. Let me just share some interesting stats with you to demonstrate as a society how open to sharing we've become. Every minute, every minute, individuals led by millennials, but including many people who are not millennials, send 2 million photos on Snapchat, tweet 500,000 times and might post 50,000 pictures on Instagram. Globally. I'm assuming these are global numbers. global numbers. Now, at the core, social media has this really symbiotic relationship with users. We supply content and data, and social media provides us with a structured experience, um, customized to our particular needs. Now, the business model here is that data that they collect, that the social medias collect from us, is ultimately best monetized through advertising. So if you can attract a a mass audience of people and then you can inject ads subtly or not so subtly into the feed that that audience is consuming, you can raise a lot of advertising dollar revenues. Now, the interesting thing here is you're right. Social media is a new business, so it's not necessarily displacing anyone else. But the migration of advertising dollars to social media is doing no end of damage to traditional media companies like newspapers, magazines, radio. Uh, And so you're seeing those businesses shrink and many media properties actually being closed down. Now, these businesses, these social media businesses are not without scandal. We have seen in the the Cambridge Analytica scandal that Facebook is grappling with at the moment that there are limits to what you can do with user data in order to maintain confidence and trust on the part of users so that they stay on the platform as well as keep their advertising dollars flowing. Now, I mentioned Facebook a few times. What we really should talk about is Facebook Blue, if we're talking about a social media platform. Facebook Blue, the original Facebook, is a very text-heavy platform. In this world of bombarding messages, many millennials have retreated to the more tranquil uh, social media platform that is Instagram. Mm -hmm. Instagram is much more about sharing photos, a much less cluttered website, Uh, It doesn't have as much advertising on it, but it's owned by Facebook and it's a large part of the Facebook story for the future, as is the WhatsApp application, also owned by Facebook. So the traditional part of the business is grappling with privacy and trading off privacy with revenue generation. There are other parts of the business there that remain to be exploited, um, But social media companies have other ways to make money, which are also fascinating. The Chinese social media companies, Tencent and Alibaba, have really been leading the way here. They've taken their large networks of loyal users and introduced other uh, business models to them, most prominently uh, mobile payments Mm -hmm. systems. So... WeChat and Alipay are dominant mobile payments mechanisms in the Chinese market. 
Uh, here, you know, they operate as discreetly different businesses, well apart from the traditional Visa or MasterCard channels. Here in the U.S., we've seen some movement towards mobile payment platforms, but interestingly, each of those efforts has recognized that the payments business is hard and that it's better to partner with a Visa or a MasterCard to make progress there. there so There is Venmo, right? But the Venmo is PayPal. Venmo is owned by PayPal and very much a favorite of millennials, but but used as only an adjunct to many millennials' financial lives. Mm-hmm. If you go out with some friends for some drinks one evening and... Or you order off of Uber Eats. Or you order off of Uber Eats. Yeah, owe somebody $12. That's right. It's for small transactions typically between friends. That's the primary use. Venmo has yet to demonstrate that it can displace other payment mechanisms in the financial lives of its users. So we've talked about social media companies being disruptive to traditional media companies like newspapers, magazines, and radio. Uh, We've also seen social media businesses push into other categories like the mobile payments business. But here in the U.S., Venmo has not taken a lot of share. Apple Pay, Google Pay, those kind of services have continued to rely on the Visa and MasterCard systems. So again, it's a very fluid world and we're doing a lot of research into it on behalf of our clients. I want to stay with money for a little bit. In our last uh, podcast, you discussed that most, not all, but at least many of the millennials are products of affluence. And they focus on satisfying these higher needs that they have because they feel comfortable that their basic needs have been met. As we think through that, what are the industries that benefit from experience and and these higher needs? Yeah, a number have, Matt. Let's take the travel industry, for example. All the behaviors of millennials that we've been talking about come together when you think about millennials' enthusiasm for travel. They're spending their income on experiences, and it's interesting looking at the way they organize their travel. They don't typically go to a traditional travel agent. Instead, they use websites like TripAdvisor to book travel. They also tend to take advantage of the shared economy. They use Airbnb instead of hotels. Now, this is putting, obviously, a squeeze on hotel occupancy and on room rates. Wanting these experiences, like travel, is also a reason why millennials tend to have uh, lower rates of expenditure on big consumer items. Principally, car ownership is the one that we could point to here. Home ownership too, right? Isn't, isn't, but home ownership yeah. too, yes. It's a different prioritization of what you want to spend your money on. And the sharing economy allows you to forego tying up your money in many of the big ticket items that the rest of us might take for granted. So instead of buying a car, millennials will gravitate to ride hailing services like Uber and Lyft or car sharing services. This is going to have all sorts of knock-on effects, which I think we've discussed uh, in, in other parts of our research, in other podcasts. Car manufacturers, for example, at best, we would expect car manufacturers over time to experience about the same car sales, car volumes they have today. But 
The bear case is that uh, if you use cars more intensively, if a car becomes a service rather than an asset, that you sell far fewer cars. Now, you already see the car companies changing their business models to create their own car-sharing services. So the implications just trickle through our economy in all sorts of interesting and profound ways. So, Paul, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much for your insights, as always, on this topic. My pleasure. Let me try and sum this up for our listeners. As I heard Paul's uh, research over the last couple of episodes, my big takeaways are that millennials are important because their behaviors are now also the behaviors of other generations, and that the companies that can profitably adapt to those preferences will, will likely be the winners over the long term, and that those that cannot will not be. So for all of you out there, thanks again for listening. If you'd like to learn more, please see the link to our white paper, Shifting the Balance of Power, in this episode's description. And as always, please email us any thoughts that you might have or questions or feedback. You can email us at insights at Bernstein.com and be sure to find us on Twitter at BernsteinPWM. So until the next episode, thanks very much. Bernstein. Making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.